Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. My wife Allison and I have greatly enjoyed being up here and beginning to meet folks, Preston and Jeff, and thanks for having us. It's great to be here. And although we drove up in the pouring rain where you couldn't see the highway, uh, the weather became beautiful, and we're very, we're very thankful for that. Well, this morning I'm going to be preaching from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. And as we just read from our Old Testament, that passage, I want to set the stage for that particular passage from Isaiah. It's a beautiful image of what God is doing, of what God is building in the world. And this passage, it comes at the beginning of Isaiah, and it forms a bit of an overture. It forms a way through which to read the rest of Isaiah, and it's a calling to the people of Israel from Isaiah in that prophecy to call them to faithfulness, to call them to remember their responsibilities to the covenant that God had made with them, but also to give them hope. It was also to give them hope that God would be faithful to his promises. Isaiah was an 8th century prophet. He was operating mainly in Judah during the reign of several kings of Judah. And this particular passage is a blueprint. It's God's plan for what he's building. It's, it's how he's going to establish his house. So for us, this is the basis for our own Christian hope, for our own understanding of what God is doing in the world. It's a promise that his house would be established. So please pray with me as we, as we go to the Lord's word. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you. We thank you that we have the opportunity to study and hear your word. Lord, would your spirit illuminate this text and would we be receptive to what you would have us be instructed by. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower, who was the 34th President of the United States, he began pushing the Federal Highway Act. This was the act that resulted in the Eisenhower highway system that, that we drive on every day out here on Highway 95. And the interstate system, perhaps you can place in your mind, having seen those blue signs with the yellow or the white stars, saying this is the Eisenhower interstate system. And it was a massive project. Today there's over 48,000 miles of highway from 95 here on the East Coast all the way out to 5, from Highway 10 down south all the way up to 90, and then even 94 up into the northwestern states. It's a, it's a massive and expansive plan. And oftentimes when I'm driving on the highway, I'll think the planning, the logistics, the energy that went into creating and then implementing this great plan. Well, this text in Isaiah, just as that highway system represented the impressiveness of people putting something into motion, this text represents a glorious blueprint of what God is doing, of how God is building his house, the designs for God's redemptive purposes in the world. So as we listen this morning, as we reflect on this text, the first hearers of this prophecy were exhorted to live in light of what God was doing. Isaiah is basically saying, here's the end product. Here, here's the basis for your hope. Here, here's the basis for your continued walking in the light of the Lord. God's building this plan, and it shall come to pass. He's building his house. 
And we as the church, we're, we're the inheritors of these prophecies. We live in these latter days, these days after Christ came. The church is God's house. So this is for us. This promise, this prophecy, it's for us. This is what we're called to live in light of. And our text this morning says a few things about how God will establish his house. And in answering that question, how, how is God going to establish his house, it gives for us a key for how we align our own purposes as a church and even as individual believers, how we align our purposes with what God is building. Because God has established his house, we must walk in his light. The first way God does this, if you look at verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. So the first way God establishes his house is by lifting up his house and drawing the nations to himself. And we see at the end of verse 2 there that nations shall flow to this house that God is establishing. And we must note here that mountains are a very prominent theme in the Bible, in the Old Testament. First, and we could spend a lot of time here, this is a sermon in and of itself, but Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and they received the law of God at Mount Sinai. And as the Israelites went through their time in the wilderness, they looked forward to coming into the land. Eventually, when the Israelites were in the land, and the monarchy was established, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion, that's another important mountain. And that's the mountain that's referred to here, that God promises to lift up high above all the other mountains. We could say a lot about this, but the important part is that on top of this mountain, on top of this mountain that, that the Lord himself will establish, he will build his house. And that's the important thing to keep in mind as we reflect on this this morning. Now, nations here, the nations that flow to this house, in the context, for the first years, they would have been non-Jewish Gentiles, people that would be attracted to what God was doing through his people and flow to it. But today, in light of who we are, in light of the church being on this side of the coming of Christ, we read nations as those people who God will draw to himself. Those who are not yet in the family of God. The elect of God from every tribe, nation, tongue, family, community, God's still drawing them into his house. And that's where we find ourselves. And this, this points to how Israel and the church, they had a purpose. The church has a purpose. It's not just for our best life now. It's that we would exist to be the vehicle through which God draws people to himself. In the same way Israel was called to walk in the light of the Lord, it was not just so that they could experience a better life, a more grounded or secure, stable life. It was to reflect the light of the Lord. That's the church's calling as well, as we think about how the church has been lifted up, the house of God has been lifted up. And as the inheritor of these prophecies, we've seen it fulfilled in part in the New Testament, in Acts 2, in the Pentecost, when every tribe, every language that was represented there in Jerusalem could hear in their own tongue what the apostles were saying. They understood each other. That's how God began to establish his house and draw the nations to himself. We see this established through the church. The church mediates the presence of Christ to the world not only to believers, but exists to reflect God's goodness into the world. And we see this through the planting of new and faithful churches and the rejuvenation and the, and the continued sustaining 
of churches throughout our land. The church is the means that God uses to draw people to himself. Many of us know the term irresistible grace. It's one of the key ways in which God draws people to himself. The irresistibleness of his grace brings people into his family. But do you ever stop and think, what are the logistics, what are the mechanics of the irresistibleness of his grace? He uses his church. He uses the church and the people of God to reflect something so irresistible that he draws people to himself through his church. My wife Allison and I met in the city of Jerusalem during a semester abroad program during our undergrad days. And what's striking about Jerusalem, and Allison and I spent a lot of time walking around the, the old city of Jerusalem and throughout those hills, and if you've ever been there, you'll, you'll resonate with this. It's a beautiful history steeped in tradition and history. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful place to be. But the hills it's built on are not altogether that impressive if, if you compare them to other mountains that you've been to. It's, they're not mountainous hills. Mount, the Mount of Olives, which sits just to the west of Jerusalem, or to the east of Jerusalem, towers above the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount, where now the Dome of the Rock and, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque sit currently. So if you were hearing Isaiah's prophecy for the first time, the image would be clear. God is going to do something big. He's going to establish something that's lifted up above the hills, that the surrounding nations would see it and be drawn to it. Not only would that have been relevant amidst the, the different religions represented in that Canaanite world, but it would point to God's purposes throughout human history. It wasn't just for them. They would have seen that this is going to be fulfilled throughout human history. It shall come to pass. And we know from Scripture, John chapter 2, that Jesus himself spoke about his own body as the temple when he said, this, body will be, this temple will be torn down in three days and, and raised up. And then later in the New Testament, 1 Peter speaks about individual believers as living stones. We're like living stones being built into a spiritual house. So this house that God has been establishing, this house that God has established, it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus that God establishes his house by drawing the nations, drawing people to himself, and he does it through Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us, for the church who have inherited this promise, this promise that God has and will establish his house? We can see that there's the already and the not yet. Jesus has come. He's established his kingdom. He's established the church. The church is going forward. But from this prophecy, we know that it's not completely fulfilled. There's a not yet element. So in this period that we find ourselves, we live in that not yet state in which we still long to see the fulfillment of this prophecy, but we also long to see those outside our number drawn into the family of God. There's a lot of applications we can make here, but I want to focus on how we are called to walk in light, to live in light of what God is building. We're to be a church that models walking in the light of the Lord. We're to be that people who are seen representing the ways of God. 
This is, of course, said best by Jesus himself in Matthew 5 when he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are to be seen. So as a church, we must ask, how do we see our purpose corporately? Not just Christ Prez here in New Haven, but churches throughout our world, throughout our land. How, how do we see our purpose? Do we strive to align our efforts with what God is building? Do we exist for our own fellowship? Do we embody the type of community in which someone who had never been inside a physical church building or maybe doesn't even know that many Christians, that, do we embody the type of community in which that person would feel respected, loved, and that the preaching of God's Word would relate to their experience of the world? Do we see Jesus' words in Matthew 5 that city set on a hill, do we see those words as merely a spiritual exercise? Or do we view our role as a church as house of God outposts in the world, as a part of what he's building? John Calvin says this about this passage, God employs the agency of man that he might awaken in them an anxiety about the salvation of others. God uses us, he uses the church to draw people to himself. Now that's we, that's the corporate, but looking more directly at our own witness and our own hearts in light of what God is doing in the world. And I'm preaching to myself here as well. How, how does God establishing his house give you confidence in speaking to your neighbors, to your family members, about the grace of God experienced in the gospel? How does the confidence that we have that Isaiah says, this shall come to pass, and we see it operative throughout the church, throughout the world. How does that confidence shape the way we view political discussions with our friends and our family who may disagree with us? Does the knowledge of this grand overarching plan of what God is doing excite you personally to invest yourself in the work and the life of the church? to align your life's efforts, the way you think about retirement, the way you think about your kids' sports activities, the way you think about your role in life, period, in your vocation and everything. Does this give you the confidence to think, this is what God's building. He's building His house. He's building His house to, to draw people to Himself. And I want to be a part of that. Because as we see how God establishes His house, His church, through the person and the work of Jesus, we see that we as the body of Christ are part of the means through which He draws people to Himself. That leads into our second point. God establishes His house by teaching people His ways. And if you look at verse 3, Isaiah prophesies, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. When Isaiah talks about God teaching people His ways, he's talking about obedience and submission to God. By using the imagery of walking on a path, he invokes the theme of living according to the way of the Lord. Living according to the way God intended human beings to live. Because learning the ways of God is submission to Him as Creator. 
learning from him is placing absolute trust in him. Now, I need to pause here for a moment and speak about obedience and submission. Because if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you think, I'm skeptical of anyone or I distrust anyone that would require obedience, that would require submission. As you've been listening, perhaps you've thought, okay, God's promising a better future. He's going to build his house, but what evidence do we have to be able to trust God? And if this isn't you, it's probably someone you may know. Uh, A quick Google search would tell you, will show you that many in our culture today do not trust authorities and institutions the way previous generations did. And the rise of fake news that we saw these past couple of years, that's evidence of this. We don't know who to trust. We don't trust people telling us to trust them. There's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of distrust of authority, of submission in general, and that's not surprising. It seems to be very often that we hear of scandal and abuse that happens at the hands of those who are in positions of authority positions traditionally that would have been trusted. If that is you, can I ask you to suspend a sense of distrust and see that Isaiah is painting a picture of God who shows himself by his character to be worthy of the utmost trust, to be worthy of our obedience, to be worthy of us submitting to him. Because we can see that through the person of Jesus, God revealed himself most fully. And Jesus defines himself as someone who's gentle and lowly, someone who desires to teach us, someone who desires to teach us to walk in the ways of the Lord. So we can see here that through God's character, he shows himself to be worthy of the utmost trust. And he doesn't do it in a heavy-handed, authoritative way, although he has the utmost authority. Jesus teaches us, in a spirit of gentleness and lowliness. Of course, we have to ask the question, what are the ways of God? We can speak about the paths of life, the ways of God, but to find what the ways of God are, we have to go back to his word. And if you look at verse 3, the second half of verse 3, Isaiah says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's word is the source of God's ways. All of our thoughts on God, all our thoughts on Jesus Christ, all of our thoughts on our expression of our faith, they flow from the Word of God. They come to us through God's redemptive plan, revealed through His Word. And that's good news. Leviticus 19 is a chapter in the Old Testament in which God gives Moses a type of manifesto about the behaviors that He expects of His people as a reflection of His own character, of His own holiness. And in that passage, this chapter in Leviticus is where Jesus draws his famous refrain, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But in that chapter in Leviticus, the refrain, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It occurs there. And many times throughout that chapter, after God expresses a reflection of his character, he says, I am the Lord. It's as if to say, this is who I am. This is who my people are to be. One theologian lists a few of the types of things that are to mark the people of God and how they live, and I'll just read a few of them. Generosity to the poor. 
fair treatment and payment of employees, practical compassion for the disabled and respect for the elderly, the integrity of the judicial process, living according to God's design for human sexuality, safety precautions to prevent the endangerment of life, protection of human life created in the image of God, equality before the law for ethnic minorities and sojourners, care for the land and honesty in business. And th these are just to name a few. The Old Testament is filled with God's character being wound throughout the way he expects his people to live. But these are part of what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord, and these are meant for the good of God's people and for the good of God's creation. Prior to coming to, to seminary, I was in the Marine Corps, and one of my jobs as an infantry officer was to plan and lead the Marines through live fire training. And we would take baby steps. We'd start with the Marines standing online, shooting at static targets, and we'd work our way up to where the Marines would be moving and shooting. And then the most intense was the Marines moving while a different element shot across overhead or in a certain angle so that a path could be created for the Marines to get to the objective. Now, that was scary for the guy in charge because, you know, a lot, a, a lot of the guy in charge of those ranges is always the one that gets in trouble first. So I, I had a lot of that weight on my mind as I would be planning and, and executing these training events. But the point is this. A lot of work went into making a clear boundary, an appropriate boundary, so that the mission could be accomplished. This is not a perfect analogy, so don't hold me to anything from the analogy. But God's law is like that. God has created appropriate boundaries as a result of his law because he's the creator. And we're the creature. He knows us. And he's created ways and he's expected ways of his creatures that are meant for our good, that are meant for human flourishing, and that reflect his character. And as we consider that God establishes his house by teaching people his ways. We first need to remember, as we mentioned just a moment ago, that Jesus teaches his people to walk in the ways of the Lord. That's one of the benefits of our own belonging. If you belong to Christ, one of the benefits of your adoption, one of the benefits of you belonging to Christ is that Jesus teaches you to walk in his ways. The way God establishes and has established his house is through teaching people his way. And this gets deeper into our own witness. As we strive to align what we're doing with what God's doing, with the house he's building, we, we have to ask, do you know the attractiveness of the way of the Lord for yourself? The way in which we can evaluate our own hearts and, and test this in ourselves it's through the means of grace. Through the means of grace, God gives his church the implements through which he is building his church. He's building his house. The word, prayer, sacraments. Do you avail yourself to these means? This is as true for our brothers and sisters who will come to the church. We need to represent a, a community that promotes and highlights these means of grace because that's the beauty of corporate worship, that we can do these things together. Of course, they don't happen just corporately. We can have personal worship and personal prayer. 
But these means of grace are the means through which we, we look at our own hearts and do I am I attracted to the ways of the Lord? Am I being built up as a, as a believer, as an individual member of God's family through these corporate and private ways that we practice the means of grace? You know, one concern about the pandemic for churches, I'm sure it's been the case here as it has been throughout our land, is who's going to come back when it's all said and done? Who maybe thought to themselves, you know, I don't miss it that much, I'm not going to come back. I'm not suggesting that about this congregation, of course. Uh, but that is a concern of pastors across the country. Who's going to come back when this is all said and done? But you know, there's a great confidence here. Because it's God that's drawing people to Himself, and it's God that desires to teach His ways to these people. And so it's God that we have confidence in. That's going to draw people to our churches, that's going to draw people to Himself. And Preston on Friday gave me several amazing stories of the history of this church, of this particular congregation, in which the Lord's provision, the Lord's overwhelming, the overwhelming sense that the Lord was building, this physical building, but also this body of believers. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence. That gives all of us a lot of confidence. This is God's church, and He's building it. And, that, and that's an awesome thing to be a part of. Leslie Newbegin, and I put this quote in the bulletin as we think about how we walk in the ways of the Lord. He says this, the only answer to the question of the credibility of the Christian faith to the, the, to the wider world, the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the Gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. And what he means there is that the way the world interprets the Gospel, the way those who are not currently in the family of God. The way they understand and think about the Gospel is the way they see the church living the Gospel. Living the ways of the Lord. So let's imagine for a moment what it would look like to live in a community that spurred each other on in living according to the ways of God. Walking in the path of His lights. Do you desire to live in a community? To worship with a community in which trust for one another would allow hard conversations to take place. That would allow the type of reconciliation only possible in the family of God to take place. Because there's trust that we can have differing opinions and still talk to one another. What would this community look like? One in which the church sought to live this out. There's much fracturing in our society today. There's, I don't need to, to go through the list of ways that there's divisiveness in our country. We, we know them well. But the church is to be a community that embodies the ways of the Lord. Where that divisiveness, although we can hold opinions and have very, very passionate convictions, the church gives us the freedom because of Jesus because of the unity we have in Him, because of the confidence we have that He's building His house, we can reach out and speak to one another in an attitude of openness, an attitude of reconciliation, an attitude of love for one another because of what Christ has done for us. And lest I make this too moralist and say, hey, it's riding on all of our shoulders, to attract people into the world through the way we live. That, that's a lot of pressure. 
So we need to remember this. And we just read it a moment ago in, in, the, in the personal confession. That we are ones who have received much mercy. The ways we live out the ways of, of the Lord, the ways we represent Christ and reflect the character of God's goodness into the world, we know from our own experience that we fail at that. We fail at that in our own families. We, we fail at that in our interaction with our neighbors. But we have the confidence of the Lord's mercy. We're not earning the right to be called children of God through walking in the ways of the Lord. God making us a part of His family by extending grace to us in Jesus Christ, that enables us to learn from Jesus and to walk in His ways. We, and we have to remember that. There's much grace here. There's much grace from God that enables us to walk in the ways of the Lord. This leads us to our final point, that God establishes His house with a promise that He will judge the world in righteousness. And if you look at verse 4 and 5, He says, He will judge between the nations, they shall be... I'm sorry, he, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And their spears, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. We're given the picture of God setting all things right. That brings us to the not yet portion of the prophecy because we know there are still wars. There's still a need to train for war. There's a pandemic going on. Lord willing, we're on the downhill slope. But that pandemic has brought much death and even the second and third order effects we haven't even seen the, the full consequences of. We looked at this promise and we can clearly see things are not right. We look to Jesus to come again to set things right. This promise that there will be a day in which there's no need to even think about the need for war. It's a beautiful picture. It's a promise that God will set the world right. He will remove sin and death. Now, God judging between the nations means that His righteousness and His justice will reign. It's a promise for a world in which God's perfect character will set everything right. Now, we're offered glimpses through corporate worship. We're offered glimpses when we gather together as the body of Christ of what heaven's going to be like when we feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we live in a world that is completely made right, we get glimpses of that through the sacraments and through corporate worship. And that's a beautiful thing, but we're meant to long for the day when Christ will return, when sin would stop being operative in our own hearts, when the relationships that are damaged in our lives will be healed, when the effects of sickness and death and uncertainty will be gone, when the disunity amongst believers will be reconciled, when disregard for human life and racial hatred and racial strife will be rectified and changed and repaired. We look forward to the day when abuse and harm towards the vulnerable will be brought to a swift end. Do you long for those things to be judged and made right? Here's the hope of the Gospel. If you're here this morning, and you're skeptical or you're on the fence of anything I've said, this is the good news. The, the thought of God judging the world is a scary thing. Because if God is full of righteousness and justice, 
and we have a sense that things are not right, and even if we look inside our hearts, we know things aren't right. And this is a God that's making everything right. That's a scary thought. We're, that's a collision. The Bible says, no one is righteous. And on the flip side, if you're the victim of injustice, if you've been the victim of evil, you don't want a God who is going to overlook it. You want a God who's going to make everything right. This creates a predicament because if we know that things are not the way they should be, even in our own hearts, the consequence and the liability for our sin still stands. But the Bible also tells us in Ephesians that God, being rich in mercy, extended salvation through the gift of Jesus Christ. So if being a part of this community, being a part of this house of God is something that you desire to be a part of what God's doing in the world. Remember this, Jesus said, I came into the world to save those people who know there's something not right with them. Jesus says, I came into the world to save sinners. Our New Testament passage, Jesus, in referring to how he was going to die on the cross, said, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. If you're being drawn to Jesus this morning, won't you put your faith in Him? We've been answering this question about how God establishes His house. His house, that, His church that Isaiah prophesied, prophesied about so long ago. And we've said that God establishes His house by lifting it, up, lifting it up so the nations will flow to it. By teaching people His ways and by judging the world in righteousness. So that's the how. That's the how of what, how God establishes His church. But what happens? What happens when God establishes His church? Well, going back to the Highway Act of 1956, several years later, Lady Bird Johnson, who was President Lyndon Johnson's wife, she was instrumental in promoting the Highway Beautification Act. And together with a team of an association of American planters and, and nurserymen, she sought to have the nation's highways planted with wildflowers. And if you've ever seen those wildflowers on any of those vast stretches of, of highway, it's beautiful. So Lady Bird Johnson's beautification plan helped to make an impressive highway system beautiful. So God's plan, it's not just impressive. It's, just, it's not just amazingly expansive. It's also very beautiful. It's full of His glory. It's a beautiful thing when God's house is established because people are blessed. Lives are changed. Marriages are healed. The brokenhearted are comforted. Forgiveness received by God's people opens the door for forgiveness and mercy extended to others. When churches teach the ways of God and preach His Word faithfully, people receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Beauty and blessings abound when God's people walk in His paths and reflect His goodness into the world. The church is to be a vehicle of blessing and meant to be seen as the Gospels lived out. And through the church, Jesus continues to free people from bondage, from sin, to bring them into a family, a connected network of people that are reflecting God's Word and living according to His plan. God is and has established His church and he's still doing it. That's something I really want to be a part of, and I hope that's 
that's your prayer as well, that you would seek to live your life in the knowledge of the grace you've received, aligning your life's work with what God is doing in building his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the promise that it shall come to pass that you will establish your house. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us, made us a part of your family, and given us this purpose, Lord. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.